we don't know when they came. They came with their podcast, A Bagel Basket Podcast, The Strangers. They wanted to know how to make people interested, but we don't have the demographic to really keep anyone's interest. So that's why we're doing Dark City. It's in the basket, the writer's bagel basket. First, there was darkness. Then came the strangers. They abducted us and brought us here. The city, everyone in it, is their experiment. They mix and match our memories as they see fit, trying to divine what makes us unique. One day, a man might be an inspector. The next, someone entirely different. Snap out of it! You owe me 15 grand, pal. I love you! That's all I needed to hear. I'm so excited! I'm so excited! Don't be mean. We don't have to be mean. Because remember, no matter where you go, there you are. Hi, welcome to Rider's Bagel Basket. I am Scott Kerland, and we continue snubs and shrugs with our first snub. And uh, honestly, everyone keeps picking shrugs for this season, so this might be our only snub. Uh, we're doing the 1998 classic, kind of, Dark City. And joining me is Mr. Christopher Brown. Hello, hello. <laughs> Uh, so, hey, Chris, how you doing? Doing good, but have you noticed that it's never day here? When is, when is the last memory that you have of the daytime? That's, I'm not talking like last week or a couple weeks ago. <laughs> the sad thing is everything is blending together, and maybe picking Dark City was not the right <laughs> movie to do during this time period. Yeah. <laughs> the strangers, they came with... COVID-19. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, so, do you want to give us the blockbuster rule for this movie? So, this, this is going to be a tough one for that, uh, because this has a... It's a pretty dense plot. But, essentially, uh, an amnesiac gentleman uh, awakens in a bathtub with no recollection of who he is or, basically, what's going on around him. And these uh, kind of terrifying white people, uh, and when I say white, I mean like bleach white with shaved heads and what have you, uh, start following him, and uh, the rest is uh, is uh, history, and I guess. And Kiefer Sutherland is there for some reason. Yeah, I loved him in this film. I loved him. So part of the reason why, to me, this should have been nominated, um, for two reasons, this was on every film critic's like best of list in 1998. Like, mm-hmm. this was Roger Ebert's number one. And this—that's w- shocking to me. He loved this so much that he did the audio commentary. <laughs> I know the way we've been looking at this film may seem to some people as if it's obsessively detailed, and maybe it is. But I enjoy that process. I think that the more closely you look at a film. Uh, the more you can enjoy it when you then, on a subsequent viewing, step back and look at it all the way through. Th- oh, that's crazy. Yeah, the audio commentary is actually pretty informative and pretty great. Yeah, that's that's surprising to me. Uh, not because I disliked this movie or anything like that. I just I, I don't see it as an Ebert movie, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, it has all the things that Roger Ebert likes, like, you know, nudity. Boobs. Yeah, yeah, he likes boobs. And that's not us being crass, ladies and gentlemen. He wrote and like produced like seven Russ Meyer films. <laughs> just saying. So uh, yeah, uh, not just that, but this film. This is an example of like sci-fi not getting its due in award season. Like I was shocked that BAFTA, the BAFTAs, didn't nominate this. The BAFTAs nominate everything that's weird, like. Yeah, I mean, if you're working in the realm of sci-fi or horror, though, you're really gunning for the technical awards, and that's that's all you can ever really hope to get, because the Academy is a bunch of um, old farts. <laughs> well, the crazy thing is that 
like they nominated District Nine for Best Picture. They've nominated they've nominated Sci Fi before, so it's not like this is out of the realm of possibilities. District Nine was so on the nose, though. That was, it, it, I mean, they could have just called that apartheid, and I think you know it would have had the same impact because it, it was just so heavy handed with what it was doing. So I, I don't think that that necessarily would count in the same way as something that has a little bit more depth as a sci fi movie. That I, I see that as as a drama slash action movie that happens to have aliens in it much more than I see it as a sci fi movie. Well, this is kind of a throwback to like the old 1940s like noirs. Like Yeah, this is very much a noir. This was clearly inspired by like The Third Man and Touch of Evil. And like that was one thing that Roger Ebert pointed out in the commentaries like, yeah, you'll see nudity and you'll see violence, but you won't hear them swear. And then I watched it again, I'm like, no one swears in this movie. It's rated R, but nobody swears. Yeah, it's rated R because you just see a bunch of dead women carved up uh, ritualistically. Kiefer Sutherland deserved a Best Supporting Actor nomination. Like, he is... I thought he... I enjoyed his performance, but he was he was hamming it up for sure. So I, I don't know if I agree with that take, but I did really enjoy his performance. <laughs> really? Because Rami Malek basically did the same thing and won an Oscar. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not happy about that either because that movie fucking sucked. But this film should have been nominated for at least best production design, best screenplay. Yeah, I, I could see I could see those elements. But again, I think that the biggest issue is just the uh, the bias of the Academy because you're you're not going to see uh, uh, this because this is a this is a harder sci-fi movie. I think that's a better way of putting it. It's it's a harder sci-fi movie than like a District Nine or something like that that does get the nod. Well, that's crazy to think because, like, back in the 1940s and, like, 1950s, these types of movies got nominated for Oscars all the time, replaced, like, aliens with communists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty stark difference. <laughs> uh, Willem Hurd is another one who deserved a nomination as well. Like, Willem Hurd... He was really good in this. He would be the one who would most likely get nominated. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, he was... He was possibly the best performance in this movie for me uh him him or richard o'brien you didn't like rufus swool a knight's tale star rufus swool i had to look him up because i was wholly unfamiliar with his name and then um, you're like I'll, oh my god he's in everything yeah he's just kind of um he's kind of there so like did you ever watch fringe oh yeah you know how they were going through those pictures in the first couple of episodes showing uh, the observers at all sorts of different events throughout history? That's kind of uh, Rufus Sowell's career. <laughs> He's just sort of there in the still shots, but, uh, you know, you blink and you'll miss him. But what, what I first thought of with him was, um, because his name's Rufus Sewell, my buddy Elijah and I used to do, this is uh, story time, I guess. My buddy Elijah and I... Are you going to talk uh, about some guy drawing genitalia on an animated animal? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is much more benign. Uh, my friend Elijah and I used to go do an open mic uh, up in Gloucester back when we were like, we were probably like 18, 19. So like just, just basically using it for experience playing out and stuff like that. And almost everyone that was there brought an acoustic guitar and sang acoustic guitar songs. <laughs> the one person that didn't was this really tall, like, mountain of a man who was probably in his early 70s, I would say, at the time, though I, I could be wrong. Remind me a little bit of George Gaines, actually. But um, he, his name was Sowell Hayes. <laughs> I think spelled the same. And he was a self-described writer of musical comedies. And he was sucking on a gumdrop through his entire performance, which involved him singing without accompaniment. So he just like went up and was like, oh, when the women have the leaves that fall in their hair. And like he was doing like arm movements and stuff with it, too. My and I just remember. My dangling. <laughs> won't you yeah. play with my dangling? It was so good, and yeah, it was all OC. Like he didn't, he didn't do any covers. He was, he was doing all Soul Hayes originals. Oh, okay. So that that was all I could think of uh, when I see Rufus Sewell. I'm like, oh man, I hope Sewell Hayes is still with us and doing well and writing <laughs> musical comedies. I just picture him doing like musicals of 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 already established musicals that are just off by little. Like instead of Oklahoma, it's like. Little Rock, <laughs> Nebraska. Oh, actually, Nebraska when the wind comes. 
I've, I've got a really fun fact here that, uh, that I think you might enjoy, uh, depending. So the venue where we went to this was called the Art Space in Gloucester, and it was owned and uh, operated by a fellow named Shep Abbott, who is the writer and creator of the film franchise Chud. Are you serious? Yes. There was actually a Chud model on display in the place. <laughs> Wait, is this what they turned into the Gloucester movie theater? Or the KPM movie been. theater? It might have been. Uh, I stopped going there um, a long time ago, and they changed. They ended up uh, moving to a different venue. So I went to an old fire trap that was on the second and third floors of uh, of some old building in Gloucester that was just filled with paper mache and paint and whatnot. Um, I think he moved it to a more like reasonable place, but yes, it, I think that the new one did turn into a movie theater. Okay, so crazy story about that. I know we're not talking about Dark City, but <laughs> <laughs> that... That person, I, I guess like a few years ago, he was going to sell it to someone. Uh, so like people were entering to win the, the theater, like Willy Wonka style. But you had to submit like a $200 entry fee and write like a one paragraph reason why you deserved the theater. That's insane. And shockingly, they made money, but no one was announced as winner. Yeah, that's that's... That's odd. Uh, yeah, I don't know if Shep was involved with that because his his thing was he was always kind of he was running a nonprofit art center, so he was always under you know pressure of uh, being foreclosed on or having what have you. So he he was always doing like fundraisers and what have you. So I don't think he was um, like a like a con artist of I don't any think kind. Because I, I think it was oh, okay, someone okay. else. Oh, okay, yeah. Because this was like a few years ago. Yeah, we, uh, my friend Deegan and I wanted to write a musical about uh, the life of Shep Abbott in the art space, and it was going to be about the city of Gloucester uh, trying to shut him down, and the plot would be he was going to have to raise the funds to keep it open. And, Please tell um, me you were doing it like a rock opera, like Tommy style, and no one talks. We never got that far, but um, all we got was the very important uh, plot note that Chud was to be a character that would only be audible to him. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Shep. You gotta do it. No, Chud. Not right now. So back to Dark City. Uh, yes. So this film became like such a cult classic that they released a director's cut. Did you know about this? I mean, that's that in and of itself is not unusual. What, what was there about the director's cut? So... <clears throat> Originally, the movie is supposed to open with like complete silence and no one speaks until you see Kiefer Sutherland uh, mm -hmm. uh, check his pocket watch and everything starts. But like there were so many test screenings where people were like, oh, so what's happening? Why is there this, you know, giant like space station 1940s structure in the middle of space? Who are these people? So like the studios like, uh. Alex, Alex Peroy is the director. You have to have some narration at the beginning. And he's like, I don't want to. First, there was darkness. Then came the strangers. They were a race as old as time itself. They had mastered the ultimate technology, the ability to alter physical reality by will alone. They called this ability tuning. But they were dying. Oh, so they, they, um, they, uh, David Lynch and dooned him. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a lot of people. The director's cut doesn't have the audio at the beginning, but a lot of people will just mute their TV until Kiefer Sutherland shows up. <laughs> yeah. My, my version did not have narration. So I assume it was the director's oh, cut. Oh, you watched but I did, it. So I did not yours realize. was 12 minutes longer than everyone else's. <laughs> All right. Was it like an hour 40 something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I watched. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I really liked this, and I'm, I'm kind of angry at myself for not watching it sooner. Yeah, I'm angry it's, at you too. <laughs> fair enough. No, it's been on my list forever because I was uh, an early adopter of The Crow that came out, I think, when I was eleven. Ninety-three. And, uh, no, ninety-four. Ninety-four. Yes, ninety-four. Came out a week later, so ninety-four. Yeah. Yeah, that's the milestone that everyone remembers. Um. Yeah, so no, I, I, have a, I, remember... I have a weird way of remembering it. Uh, Go on, because I wanted to see the crow, and uh, 
uh, my family was like, no. And uh, my m- the rest of my family wanted to see uh, the Flintstones. And my cousin and my dad are like, let's go see Maverick instead. So that's how I remember it. <laughs> Alrighty then. Also, I had a blockbuster movie calendar that had like all the movies of 1994. So it had like Speed, the Flintstones, the Crow on Halloween. So imagine that poster, uh, that, that <laughs> calendar hanging yeah. next to my bed with Brandon Lee, may rest in peace, looking at me as I slept. <laughs> oh, I, I had the Crow poster and everything. Don't don't you worry. Like like I said, I was an early adopter. My brother saw it in the theaters because he's, uh, he's four years older than me. So he was able to kind of like finagle his way into R-rated movies, uh, like 15 or so. And he was describing it to me. And I'm like, this sounds like the coolest movie that's ever happened. Oh, man, I thought and- you were going to say that he snuck you into the movies. You were just two kids in a trench coat. You're on top of his shoulders. <laughs> yeah, he puts the 11-year-old on top of the 15-year-old um, in a kind of a weird Hail Mary play. Did no, I send he, you he that photo it. of there were, there were kids a few years ago trying to get into John Wick, and someone took a photo of them doing exactly that the two kids in the trench coat <laughs> that's very good i gotta find it and send it to you uh yeah so uh he ended up renting the crow right when it came out on video and i watched it a million times when he had it and uh when i got a laser disc player a few years later that was one of the ones that was uh an essential one for me and then when laser went out of print a few years later uh yes yeah yeah that happened <laughs> Well, the problem with Laserdisc is you had to flip it over. It depended on the player, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I didn't mind it. I've always listened to records and everything through my entire life, too, so that's never been, like, an issue. So the the crazy thing about this movie is this was one of the movies that I watched all the time because uh, no uh, cable channel wanted it to air except for stars like stars was starting out and they're like oh we'll take it (laughs) and so they played this thing all the time like i knew when it was playing for a week so it'd be on stars 2 at like uh 6 a.m noon 9 9 a.m like just in like a regular pecking order so i always knew when to watch it and i just was obsessed with Kiefer Sutherland, not because of Lost Boys, but because of <sighs> Three Musketeers. Oh, nice, nice, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's one of those good movies. <laughs> that that's a movie that I can't wait to talk about on Bagel Basket. I've like hinted at it so many times, but if you look at the cast of that movie and just imagine like the drug and alcohol bill for a Disney movie <laughs> <laughs> and prostitutes. Yeah, I I've not seen that in a long time and i don't think i've ever seen the entire thing just bits and pieces of it here but like Kiefer, like this was the part of his career when like he was at a lull like he wasn't getting a ton of work so then like he shows up in this and he is fucking brilliant like <laughs> yeah he does he does over overdo it a little bit i think but yeah i agree that he he does a great job in this you didn't like him at the end when he uh, is in Rufus Swool's mind and he's like, Getting the hang of it, John. Maybe one day I'll be working for you. This is the machine the strangers use to amplify their thoughts. The machine that changes their world. You must take control of it. You must make the machine yours. I know you can beat them, John. But you must concentrate. Something's wrong. At the end, when he injects him with basically how to train him, it's the craziest thing. It's it's a very very odd odd uh, film. Uh, so Alex Proyas, this was like his first movie since The Crow, and he's one of those guys who like only does movies when he wants to. Alex Proyas is like, I'll only do like uh, movies where I know I have control over it. And then, mm-hmm. like, basically uh, doing iRobot and knowing broke him <laughs> because the studio had to be involved. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's pretty unfortunate because uh, The Crow was such a it was a solid start for his career. And then Dark City was an excellent follow up. But, uh, yeah, it seems like he kind of trailed off after that. Have you seen Gods of Egypt? That's the one with Chadwick Boseman, right? 
Yes. Yeah, I've seen yeah, it. Yeah, it, I've seen it. Gerard Butler and uh in the Game of Thrones boy. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's a stinker. He did that? Yeah. Oh man. Wow. Yeah, it's, that's actually his most recent movie. So he hasn't done a film in uh, four years. I think that's years. the one that made him like give up. Uh, I would not be shocked at that because yeah, that it just it doesn't feel like a movie made by the same person who made this or the crow. Yeah, because I know he made after uh, after iRobot, he made like an indie called Garage Days, which is about like Garage Band. Interesting. Yeah, and the problem with like those films, the later films. Most of his films always shoot in Australia because, you know, he's Australian and he doesn't want to leave home. So, like, Mm -hmm. New Line was like, yeah, you can shoot it there. We don't care. And Miramax was the same way for The Crow. And and Fox was like, no, you need to make this Will Smith movie in California. I could see Will Smith demanding that as well because he's got the clout. And he had the clout even back in, like, 2005 or whenever to do that. So, yeah, with this film you can tell like how detailed it is and new line thought that they had lost like a ton of money on it, but they didn't because they sold most of the sets to Warner brothers to be used in the matrix. Yeah. That's one of the really interesting things about this movie is the subconscious connections to the matrix, because I think that they were, the production was probably a little too close for there to be any direct influence, but there's just a lot of, coincidences in the plot um and just not even necessarily overt things but just like vibe and what have you throughout it might just be the sets being used or whatever well but also the whole jesus story of the one how john murdoch is the one in this one and neo yeah they kind of look alike i mean i don't know if they look alike (laughs) i don't know if i can if i can agree with you there Uh, a skinny man with with like brownish black hair who looks incredibly pale yeah but see um if you look at the two of them keanu reeves just looks like an average guy um whereas uh good old soul looks like the kind of guy who's been nude on camera and is okay with that (laughs) yeah i I totally forgot that this movie opens up with like five minutes of rufus wool's butt (laughs) yeah yeah, there's a good amount of it. I was surprised. Uh, honestly, like I don't want to go blue here, but when I saw the angle of that, I was shocked that I did not see uh, the old testicles. <laughs> yeah, I could see Murdoch um, not taking anyone's advice. Like if if someone on set was like, "Okay, so we can we can tape up your testicles uh, so that you know they're not shown on camera," and he's just like, "Oh no, I'm I'm fine." <laughs> They'll, they'll, they'll stay out but what if someone sees your penis then they see my penis then they see little rufus all right <laughs> um i also love how the whole premise that that he's a good guy is he literally he doesn't save the cat he saves the goldfish i have the exact same note save the goldfish <laughs> and, and then like you have willem heard who's like who is a mass murderer of prostitutes and why would he save a goldfish? <laughs> yeah, uh, it made me wonder if uh, Blake Snyder was like a, a writing coach <laughs> for Proyas or something. Well, David S. Goyer wrote the screenplay, so like... Did he? I thought that uh, Proyas co-wrote it. So Proyas wrote this like almost <laughs> like a car manual script. It was the first thing written and then... Lem Dobbs and David S. Goyer came in to write actual dialogue because, like, the script was, like, unfilmable. Like, New Line is like, Uh, you can't make this movie. This movie is unfilmable. (laughs) (laughs) Lem Dobbs is such a great name because it sounds like a nickname. Lem Dobbs! Coming up to the plate, Lem Dobbs! (laughs) Lem Dobbs here! Get your Lem Dobbs! Uh, so yeah, they had to bring in uh, the two men behind Blade to to basically fix it. Yeah, I was reading that uh, Proyas read an early draft of Blade, and that's why he wanted to bring in uh, Goyer for it. So, like, this is more proof of why David S. Goyer needs to just write screenplays and not try directing or producing. What's he? Uh, what's he directed? Blade Trinity. Oh, I haven't seen that. It's bad. 
Yeah, I've I've never actually seen any of the blades. I've had uh, I've had very little interest. Like the first maybe the first one, is one really good. The second one is Guillermo del Toro, so it's different. Mm. Yeah, I think I don't know. He just he's a really really hit or miss writer too, because what he did directly before this was the Crow City of Angels, and that movie was like real bad. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but fun fact about Richard O'Brien on the set of this movie: the little kid. Dr. Sleep, or Mr. Sleep, not Dr. Sleep, Mr. Sleep, yes. uh, was twins, and they loved Rocky Horror Picture Show, so I guess in between takes, Richard O'Brien would just be singing to these two twins, science fiction double feature. How old were those children? Uh, 11 or 12. Okay, I, I guess I saw Rocky Horror around the same time. Yeah, I saw Rocky Horror when I was 10 or 11. Yeah, yeah, Okay. I, I was thinking that they were younger. No. No, it's because everyone's bald in this movie. Yeah, it's really hard to tell the ages there. Jennifer Conley in this... I will die on this hill, but it says that she sung that song. She sung Sway. I'm like, she did not sing that song. I did not watch closely enough to determine whether or not uh, I, I bought into her performing it. Either way, she would be lip syncing it at that point. She wouldn't be like singing but it. But they're live, saying that so. she she recorded it and she's lip syncing <clears throat> herself. I'm like, no, she she's not singing that song. I don't know. Maybe she is. <laughs> the The crazy thing about Jennifer Conley in this movie is she does absolutely nothing. She is just a damsel in distress the whole movie, and it's kind of upsetting. A little bit, yeah. She's she basically just exists for John to have purpose. I, I so like for why was I more more you know uh, rooting for the prostitute May to to end up with John then? Oh yeah, alias what's her name? Uh, Melissa George. Melissa George. Yeah, yeah. That's oh, I know her from Sugar and Spice. Ah, uh, okay. She's the girl who is uh, obsessed with Conan O'Brien and Sugar and Spice. Okay. Yeah, I was the so I was talking to Daniel as we were watching this, and there was a scene with uh, Jennifer Connelly where it did like a long um, still uh, angle on her face, and I was thinking to myself like, she's not remotely overweight here, but she lost so much weight between this and Requiem for a Dream, which like, was like I two wonder years later, not even it was like a year later, was it? I think so. I think it was ninety nine. I hate Requiem. I think it no, it was two thousand. And I only know this because you're going to be on Hell is a Musical for Dancer in the Dark, and that was the same year, and they were both 2000. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, by the way, speaking of Requiem for a Dream, did you notice that the last shot of this was Requiem for a Dream? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that, like, the entire time. Not just that, yeah, that but, was, uh... but when, like, it does him remembering, like, Shell Beach and doing, like, the, the Zoom Fast thing. Like, that's mm -hmm. Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, I was actually surprised. Like, I have now seen two movies with Jennifer Connelly standing at the end of a boardwalk, and it's absolutely insane that I've seen that many movies with Jennifer Connelly standing at the end of a boardwalk. Yeah, but the difference between that and uh, this movie is I can never watch Requiem for a Dream again. I could watch this all the time. I, I could watch Requiem for a Dream. Uh, it's not like a often thing, and usually it's the last thing I'll do before going to sleep, so then it doesn't ruin my day. <clears throat> no, it just gives you nightmares. Ah, uh, that's fine. Oh, God, I had nightmares of Dylan Baker getting mad that, you know, <laughs> my arm's all fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> but Jennifer Conley in this movie, she's like, uh, yeah, I was a bad wife. I cheated on him. <laughs> and Rufus Wool's like, no, you didn't. They just put memories in your brain to make you a philanderer. Yeah, I, I did like that aspect of it, that the, that the aliens were... Um, constantly just kind of tinkering around with people that whole scene with the 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 really blue collar couple who then get upgraded significantly uh into basically living in a mansion yeah they become the one <laughs> that was yes that was it was a really interesting scene and uh honestly the way that city unfolded was definitely a direct influence on inception too there's no way that no one didn't see this and take ideas from it no i didn't people need to go to movie theaters I want you to go to the movie theaters and get COVID. That is the most important thing. You got to see the movie in the theater. Why is he I, Michael Caine? Yeah, he started turning into Caine there, and I tried to reel it back, but at that point, you know, it was too late. It's only COVID nineteen. Only COVID nineteen. <laughs> I once had COVID twenty one. 
You don't want to have COVID-21. You're supposed to blow the bloody doors off of it. If Michael Caine gets loud, he gets very loud indeed. <laughs> but, yeah, th- there's a lot of Inception uh, inspired here. Definitely a lot of Matrix, which was a year later. Like, I wonder if the Wachowskis were on set and the, the, they're like two kids in the candy store. They're like, we'll take that staircase. We'll take some of these <laughs> building tops. Yeah, po- possibly. We'll, ta- <laughs> we'll, we'll take Kiefer Sutherland. No, you won't take Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> You know, thinking about um, the people getting the the shots every night and their lives changing and having memories implanted and what have you, how does everyone not have a big hole in the middle of their forehead? I have no idea, but not just that. Like, (laughs) the one person I wanted to talk the most about, I could spend the next hour talking about the front desk manager of the hotel who then becomes... Oh, the the, one who also works at the newsstand? Yeah, because that guy... Like, his acting choice, he made a decision of how his character acts, and he went with it because he's like, <laughs> uh, what, what is it? We make our books like we make our bets all night, nice and tidy. And then, like, when he's <laughs> like, how long have you worked here at the newsstand? 25 years. Not Nothing off for good behavior. Like, he has these, like, throwaway yep. lines that almost seem too written to be improv, but they could have been ri- improv, like... Yeah, he's like the average kid in an elementary school class where like they're not getting the extra attention from a teacher uh, because they're not causing problems and they're not over-exceeding. So every now and then the teacher will give them like a, oh, yep, good job. And they'll be like all excited that the teacher <laughs> talked to them. I think that that was this guy's relationship with Alex Proyas. Because like he's so, like I can't put my finger on it. Like there's something off about him, but... Because when when he becomes the other front desk uh, uh, guy, the, that guy is like, I said, uh, three weeks is three weeks. I need money on the barrel head, and that was that. And like, but when you see that scene before, he's like, we make our books like we make a blah blah blah. <laughs> and I told you, money on the barrel head. Like he's talking like an old nineteen forties like like newsreel ghost. <laughs> yeah, you just have to speed him up a little bit. That would be great, too, if that was, like, the one direction that Proyas kept giving him. You gotta slow down, man. You gotta slow down. Too fast. <laughs> 1933, Hitler, this man. Excuse me. Excuse me. Richie? Richie Singer. Yeah, it's me, Alex Proyas. Uh, yeah, Richie, I'm gonna need you to slow down. 1939? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is the actor's name, by the way. Uh, Richie Singer. Who's the guy who he plays has... Walensky, the detective? I will look that up in one second, but first I need to tell you that Richie Singer has the least organized Wikipedia page I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it's it's actually kind of impressive because just nothing is formatted whatsoever. So you know how normally you'll see a filmography that has a nice collection of links and dates and what have you. Uh, with him, it's just a bunch of large blocks of text. I just sent you a link to it. Yeah, I'm like, Jesus Christ. I think he wrote this himself. <laughs> quite possibly oh that's uh, why Col- he's in a bunch of alex price movies because he's from australia yeah that makes sense uh colin friels is uh walensky i so that that guy <laughs> mr not not quite uh uh michael uh shannon not quite uh 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 what's his name from uh fringe the the uh partner Vecchio, know who I'm talking about? He was also on. Oh, the the, uh, the original partner who was in the first episode. Uh, first couple of episodes. Yeah, he was the one that he was the one that got shot, right, or died. Uh, her boyfriend was. No, I, I'm thinking of the other guy, the guy who was also on Oz. Oh, um. But he looks like that guy. Is my point, like Wolensky. Walensky is like the character in this. He's like, I'm not crazy. I don't know who that woman is. Like, he should be terrified that like people are putting stuff in his brain and his wife isn't his wife anymore. And he's like, yeah, it's just some dame. <laughs> yeah, he he takes the things pretty well. Although, to be fair, his general sort of demeanor is one of looking confused and slightly uh, concerned. 
like that's that's his demeanor throughout all of this. I don't know if you caught a picture or caught a glimpse of the wedding picture that was in the background of his and Jennifer Connelly's apartment because he has the same exact look on his face in that. I, I made a note of it. Like Jesus, he looks just as confused in his wedding photo. Oh, I'm not talking about Rufus Fool. I'm talking about the cop. Oh, oh, oh! Gotcha, gotcha, the, gotcha. The detective. Yeah, Wolenski, the former detective. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's so calm when he, he uh, when Willem Hurt's like, you're really scaring your wife. And he goes, that's not my wife. I don't know who she is. <laughs> like, Oh, well, I think the rationale for that is that he'd made his peace with everything because he did kill himself immediately thereafter. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I know who you are. You didn't do it. And I know I know you didn't. You're not a you're not a killer. Uh, but no one's going to believe me. So here I go right in front of this train. <laughs> which I've had this discussion with people have you ever ever seen anyone jump in front of a train not intentionally not what <laughs> no I've seen uh, a drunk person like fall off like it wasn't the train wasn't coming I should say that they just they fell off the platform oh, okay. and had to like be helped back up did they die no Okay, when I was in New York, I saw at least two people jump in front of a train. <laughs> Start spreading the news. <laughs> it's terrifying, but it's like it was the scariest thing I've ever seen. Uh, New York is a fucking insane place. I, I don't think that we actually acknowledge that as a culture enough because New York always gets credit for like if you're in your 20s, it's the place where you can go party. If you're in your 30s, it's a place where you can go and get legit culture and what have you. But I don't think any of us really give it its due that it's an absolute nightmare, insane place where weird shit happens all the goddamn time. And crazy shit that you will never see anywhere else like multiple people jumping in front of trains is just something that's you know it was clearly oh, it's just like part a of the experience who like had just lost his job or something and just oh god and like the f train was coming and bam it, it, it was terrifying and watching this again I, I just go back to that i'm like oh my god yeah that's that's horrifying um so yeah i i love how murdoch is like no also, do you know who's actually killing the prostitutes? I didn't catch that. No. Was it uh was it Kiefer? No. It's Mr. Sleep. It's the little kid. Oh. Well, I mean not that Mr. Sleep is actually a kid. Well, yes. It's an alien in the body of a child. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, cuz Mr. Sleep is the first person who wants like bad things to happen, uh suggests killing Rufus Wool, like Okay, so they didn't actually overtly say it. It's just sort of um, suggested. Well, when Melissa George encounters the uh, the whatchamacallits, the, the strangers, it's it's Mr. Sleep who approaches her. Okay. It's crazy. Also, but, I, uh, I love how their logic is, well, if he's becoming like us, we need to become like him. And... I love the one stranger is like, yeah, but he's not becoming this guy. He's not becoming a serial killer. Yeah, one of them got it, but um, that was kind of a fault in the hive mind. There, there are some issues with uh, with a hive mind, and uh, I think that <laughs> the crazy thing <laughs> yeah, is the majority Mr. of Book, them not. Mister Book is the guy from the original House of Cards from the nineteen nineties. Yes, yeah, and he's in Brazil too, right? <laughs> yes, he's in Brazil. Yeah, yeah. It's just so crazy to see him in this role. And like he is the most powerful person until Rufus Sewell comes along. Yeah. I like um I liked Mr. Wall too. He's uh he's a great character actor. He just has such a long face that you can use him. He's like a real life uh Wallace from <laughs> Wallace and Gromit. Which one was he? Uh Mr. Wall. Yeah. Yeah, he was the one with the long face. <laughs> Uh, here, let me let me look him up. Was he the the uh, Bruce Spence? So he was the fourth one who actually talked because you had the little kid, you had Richard O'Brien. Yeah, that that sounds about right. Yeah, he he was fine, <laughs> but no, I, I'm just saying I like his head. <laughs> what a thing to want! <laughs> I just want to play with his head. I didn't say I want to play with his head. I just sure said I like didn't. his head. 
look, you're the one who's uh, who's drawn weird conclusions here. So I think that uh, <laughs> if anything, I should be a little unnerved by what you want to see me do. <laughs> I want to see you play with Bruce Spence's head. <laughs> hey, uh, fuck you. Anyways, <laughs> um, did you notice that like? The reason why Kiefer Sutherland has a rat in a maze... Yeah, the first time we see Kiefer, he's playing with a rat in a maze is because everyone is a fucking rat in a maze. Yeah, the um, the <laughs> that was not exactly a subtle little uh, allegory there. I, I just wish, like, when Jennifer Connelly is like, what are you doing? I'm playing with a rat in a maze, like all of you. What? Nothing? <laughs> Have you ever seen the film Dark City? <laughs> oh, no? Oh, that makes sense, because we're in it. Yeah, it's kind of like that. <laughs> Honestly, I kind of wish that Kiefer's like, entire lab was in the pool because he knows that they hate the water so much. Yeah, that was a weird detail that they threw in there. They hate water, they hate sunlight. They're vampires. Well, sunlight f- is fine, but the water is is odd. Which is weird. Yeah, you're right. It's weird because there's all of these piers. Like, like there's one point where he just walks, like, he leaves a building. He, he walks out a door, and there's, like, a small little, like, deck, and there's water everywhere. Well, and why would they, because they're responsible for the, the contents of Dark City. Why would they build a pool? I have no idea. <laughs> what, if, what if it was just, like, uh... Well, I'm guessing that Kiefer's like, I need this for my, you know, allergies. Yeah, it was like in The Matrix when, um, uh, who the hell was the character that um, that betrayed them? Was it Cypher? Yeah. Yeah, when he was eating the steak. that Maybe that, maybe that's his Cypher's steak, is having a pool. Well, okay, so with that, I've thought about that a lot. Cypher basically boots himself into The Matrix while everyone's asleep. Like... Yeah, I mean, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole, but yeah, that part always bugged me because how the fuck did he get out? Well, I I think that's when Keanu Reeves like creeps on him, and he's like, "Oh, you can't see that? I just see blonde, blue, brunette, redhead," because like everyone else is asleep and Keanu and him are awake. So, what if Keanu just like helped him and didn't realize he was doing it? That would be pretty fun. It'd add a new dimension to things. Uh, but yeah, in in this, for some reason, there is a pool where. It kind of reminded me of the pool, uh, Francis's giant bathtub in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, turn the lights down a little bit and get rid of all the windows, and yeah, you've you've got basically the same thing right there. You're miles away from where anyone can hear you scream. Uh, so, do you want to know what my favorite line of dialogue in this movie was? It's not. I'll give you a hint. To it. Not, it was said by Will. It was said by William Hurt. What is it? <laughs> Someone woke up on the wrong side of the bed. <laughs> There's which a lot said, of that 1940s jargon in this movie. Which he said in response to finding a naked murdered prostitute who was ritualistically murdered uh, <laughs> lying by the side of her bed. <laughs> it's it's like on Law and Order when like they find a dead body in a certain location. Like uh, they find a dead school teacher and they're like, school's out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or a dead basketball star, full court press. Me, uh, me, Danielle, and uh, our friend Owen once wanted to start a show called uh, Law and Order, and it was going to be like like law, like Juan, L A W N order, and it was going to be all gardening related puns. <laughs> and as soon as anyone said one, then David Caruso would take off his sunglasses, and you'd hear the who. <laughs> Wait a minute, that's CSI. That's not Law and Order. Eh, whatever. <laughs> but but in, in this like the detectives are detectives like the men are men and women are women like yeah i think that's basically correct but, but no one'd be crazy because apparently they just like picked up all of these people uh they stole them the aliens did and created the space station what if they like picked up them from the 90s and they're like uh parachute pants that's a little too much <laughs> We we gotta we gotta reel these people in. They've gone too far. We cannot follow them down this path. Well, we just found all of these videotapes. Uh, Orson Welles. Looks like we're going to 1940s Vienna. 
I don't know what made them decide to go with film noir. They're like, oh, well, film noir, everything's black and white and dark. I guess uh, we can't see the sun, so let's do that. So are you saying that the cinematography and production design of this film uh, it was created by the aliens? Or <laughs> No, I'm saying that, that <laughs> like when they were writing in the screenplay, the mindset was they like... <laughs> I just picture the strangers going into like a blockbuster video. <laughs> <laughs> what time period can I go with? Hey, excuse me. Clearly 40 year old virgin who works here at this blockbuster video. What time period was everything dark and there was no sun? Uh, film noir. Okie dokie. I have found the Maltese Falcon. We will watch this. It's just, hey, can we rent Rocky Horror Picture Show? No, Mr. Hand, stop suggesting that. <laughs> yeah, that'd be pretty good if Rocky Horror existed in this universe. And if we're supposing that the aliens did visit Earth and tried to learn of our ways via um, VHS, <laughs> that yeah, he was he was oddly drawn to it. It's astounding. <laughs> Time is fleeting. Mr. Hamp, please stop doing that. And while you're at it, please stop talking about this meatloaf person. <laughs> it was uh, at the very end of the film that we finally got a good look at it. But man, Kiefer's eye. That was something, huh? That, that makeup. Well, they did that to him. Yeah, no, I understand. But that makeup was, uh, that was something, huh? Yeah. I, I really appreciated it because like I, I could tell something was up with his glass, but with his glasses on before I couldn't really get a good glimpse at it. And at the very end of the film, his glasses come off, and it's like, oh, that's what they've been hiding under there. Well, the crazy thing is his character, Dr. Daniel Paul Schreiber, is based on a real neuropsychologist named Dr. Daniel Paul Schreiber, who has basically wrote a book hinting at something like this. That's absurd. That I did not know. So, like, Alex Perez is like, yeah, let, let's do that. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> I still so like we we've talked about everyone except for Rufus Swool. Like he's our leading man. Uh it's clear that this role was written for Johnny Depp. Because it was. Uh yeah, I could see that being a, a Depp vehicle. Uh yeah, Sewell is he was interesting in this. I, I don't think he was bad. He just wasn't memorable. I think that that was his biggest issue. His his the way he portrayed the character was super interesting to me because it felt almost like a David Byrne character. Oh hey yeah sure I'll, <laughs> I'll just do whatever you want. I'm Rufus Sewell. As the Rufus goes and the Sewell <laughs> follows. Dark City, Cascasse. And you ask yourself, this isn't my beautiful wife. This isn't my dark city. These memories were implanted as the days go by and the water doesn't flow. That that was another crazy thing. I love how Rufus Will is like, hey, do you remember seeing the sunlight? And he's like, what are you talking about, Johnny? Of course I know when the uh, uh, sunlight is, uh, you know, don't ask too many questions. Uncle Carl. His Uncle Carl. <laughs> Johnny, what's wrong, Johnny? <laughs> His uncle is like out of a, a Arthur Miller play. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Uncle Carl is actually, I think, probably the character who it's we've discussed the least in a criminal fashion because uh, there was a, there's a lot of meat on that there bone <laughs> with that fella. Johnny, I'm just I'm just looking out for you. We're just trying to take care of you. If you, if you need help, we can give you help. There's there's a hotline you can call. Come on, <laughs> don't go crazy. I love how Uncle Carl shows up again at the end as a different person. I did not know that. He's the guy who gives up his seat to Jennifer Conley on the bus. I didn't realize that. Oh God, yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. Uh, and the one person I feel the worst for, do you know who I feel really bad for in this movie? Well, let's see. There's a lot of people to feel bad for. Um, I think Wolensky is probably the person I have the most sympathy for because he lived with the knowledge the longest and was basically convinced there was nothing he could do about it. Willem Hurt is is the one I feel the worst for because 
he is starting to help them make change because he like goes on the side of of John Murdoch, and then they basically bash open the shell beach and they f- discover that they're in space. And he goes, he gets, he basically gets sucked out like in a that Treehouse of Horror with uh, Bill Clinton and Bob Dole getting sucked out into space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like an end of Alien scenario. Yeah, like I feel so bad for for Willem Hurt when he just basically gets sucked out with uh, Mr. Uh, the guy whose head you want to play with. Uh, that's that's no one. <laughs> There's not a person that matches that description. <laughs> sure, it doesn't. No, no, uh, Mr. Poole. Uh, they, they both get sucked out into space. And I just feel so bad for Willem Hurd because I'm like, oh, man, what about your poor mother? <laughs> Who you have the 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 photograph of his mother on the desk? Yeah, well, he was interesting to me too because everyone else in this was changing pretty regularly. He he wasn't, which I thought was interesting. They they kind of kept him static throughout. Because he's like the hard boiled detective. Like he didn't need an. Yeah, I suppose they need to become. They, they someone need else. someone there in that role. What if he? Who would they change him into? I mean, literally anything. They they changed like some uh, day laborer type into into like a wealthy aristocrat. <laughs> they they have a lot of options here. Well, what would have been crazy is if they were going to change him, have him and Murdoch switch. Then he becomes the detective, and Murdoch becomes uh, and uh, Willem Hurt becomes a serial killer. Like that would have been cool. That would have been cool, actually, if they had switched around roles like that. Um, but, like, the whole idea of switching them up is to try and discover how they have a soul. Yeah, so that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, it doesn't make sense to leave someone in one position for very long. Like, it, they want to keep going if that's their strategy. I don't know why they decided, like, oh, this one is good. We will leave him as he is. <laughs> He's really good at his job. We should give him a pension. listen to him play that accordion you know why he plays an accordion right does he in real life no no he learned how to play the accordion for this movie it's because detectives in detective movies and sherlock holmes plays like the violin like okay so they just gave him a random instrument yeah i would have loved for him to be playing a banjo (laughs) Oh, that would have been so fun. Yeah, he's just interrogating. He's interrogating Soul, and all of a sudden he just pulls that out and starts playing the opening riff to Rainbow Connection. <laughs> and he just does like full on Kermit voice. <laughs> I, I don't I don't understand this reference. It's nineteen forty something. I also loved uh, the scene in the automat where he basically breaks it with his brain. Oh, yeah, yeah, right at the very beginning. Yeah. And he's like, I got to get out of here. You said you had a problem with the tuning? No, I don't, I don't have a problem with the tuning. No, no, the special effect. You said it uh, in a text. I had. Oh, the vi- I, I disliked the visual effect whenever it showed um, someone actively tuning. It would show swirls, like the the film would swirl in front of their face. That I disliked. So you would have preferred it just be flat out telekinesis and you don't see anything. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, Yeah. So what I was wondering is, were they going to end up making uh, Jennifer Conley's character a prostitute who got killed by him? I don't know, because it wasn't clear what she was at the end. Uh, she didn't seem like she was a prostitute. No, I mean before. Before, like... Because Schraber clearly made her something that she wasn't supposed to be. I think she was supposed to be a victim of his. Eventually. That's possibly. Yeah, that's possible. Um, I mean, this movie has, what, two women in it? <laughs> so... <laughs> they really weren't pulling from an extremely deep pool. Uh, Alice, do you want to add a few women? No, I'm good. But you have really undeveloped female characters. Yeah, I'm good. But I said I'm good. It's it's not for the women, okay? <laughs> this is for me. Yeah, basically every female character in this does exist just to um, push John's plot forward. 
Well, if you look at Alex Roy's other movies, that's kind of the case too. The Crow. Uh, no, I, well, The Crow had Sarah. The Crow had three women in it: his dead girlfriend, Sarah, and Sarah's heroin addict mother. Yeah. And well, to be fair, Sarah's mother actually had a little bit of an arc in there, even though she wasn't even a main character. My point is that he only writes like two or three women into his screenplays. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because iRobot is uh, Bridget Monaghan and his grandma or his mom. That's it. Well, it's because um, Alex Proyas hasn't ever uh, talked to a girl in real life. He's too shy. That would be horrible if that was true. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like Jennifer Conley's asking for like motivation like hey how do I do this and he just keeps looking away and keeps walking away uh, I'm talking to you and he holds up his script to his face <laughs> uh, I'm, 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 I, can't, I can't I can't and he just kind of like scurries off to his trailer <laughs> ask Rufus <laughs> and Willem Hurt God, oh man. that was another thing I wanted to talk about this movie is like the, the, the battle of the raspy voice like you have Richard O'Brien's raspy British voice, and then you have Kiefer Sutherland, then Willem Hurt, then Rufus Wool. Like, mm-hmm. was this movie made by Ludens? <laughs> dark City, now in Cherry. <laughs> we have two flavors of Dark City, Cherry and Licorice. <laughs> cherry, and then Frank Bumstead's first personal favorite, Whiskey. <laughs> The crazy thing about this entire movie is how it should not work. This is a movie that should not be as good as it is. It's well, it's interesting because it handles a lot of concepts, some of them, you know, deeper than others, and it's juggling a lot of them around and it was created in a time period where films didn't reliably tie things together very well. So it's it is it's actually a surprisingly economical movie considering everything about it. And like 98 was not a great year for movies. Like the year of of this Oscars was like the movies that should have been nominated for best picture and I I include this movie in there. This movie should have been nominated for best picture. Affliction wasn't nominated. Like the movies that were nominated were like Shakespeare in Love, Life is Beautiful, um Saving Private Ryan, and then like this movie and like Little Voice and uh, Affliction were like snubbed. Yeah, that's crazy. Like if you look at the the uh, Oscars for the nineteen ninety nine Oscars, which is technically the ninety eight Oscars. Don't tell me how that works because I have no idea. Yeah, but, it's stupid. Like. All the films nominated for Best Picture were not as good as this film, minus Saving Private Ryan. Uh, Life is Beautiful. Uh, Have you seen it lately? It does not age well. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, we've got uh, uh, Shakespeare in Love. Um, What is this? The Thin Red Line. Oh, Gods Gods and Monsters is actually really damn good. Was that nominated for Best Picture? Best Screenplay. But not Best Picture. I'm, I'm talking about Best Picture. Oh, no. Best Picture was Thin Red Line, Saving Private Ryan, Life is Beautiful, Elizabeth, and Shakespeare in Love. Elizabeth it. and Thin Red Line, I fe- feel like those two should not have been nominated for Best Picture because Queen Elizabeth is in Shakespeare in Love and Thin Red Line was the same year as Saving Private Ryan. Like, mm-hmm. Affliction, maybe this one little voice like i'm just a, i'm just a sucker for little voice so oh <laughs> jesus um weird guess what was this uh, you're not going to be able to guess in a million years but one of the best uh best screenplay nominees was bullworth yeah i didn't know that Be- what the fuck because i was i was gonna say that that should have been replaced by this yeah, that would make a hell of a lot of sense. Yeah, because uh, Truman Show was on there as well. Because I, Truman Show was on there as well, which uh, I, I I like that script. Yeah, uh, I think that's that, another I think that movie that could have been nominated for Best Picture over the over <clears throat> any of those choices, minus Saving Private Ryan. Man, yeah, none of this, none of this, I agree with. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, is there anything else you want to 
talk about? Let's see. I don't think I had any other notes here. Um, I did like the occasionally Lynchian sound design that was happening oh, in this yeah. film. This is a very the David Lynch movie. Oh, hi. The, s- <laughs> the score was very good. The score is uh, another I, thing that should have been nominated. I really enjoyed how frequently we would go into like Marilyn Manson circa 1996 era reverse tape loops of like calliopes and things <laughs> like that. That was really, really cool. And I could have used more of that. There was a good amount of it, but I can always use more of that. And yeah, it was it was definitely it was it was a fun score that added a lot to this film. Yeah, this this is just such an underrated film. Uh, I still I, I'll die on this hill. Kiefer or or Willem Hurt, one of those should have been nominated for best supporting actor. This this should have been a film to be nominated for best screenplay. It's such a shame. Yeah, it's the the problem once again is just that it's a it's a dense science fiction movie. Oh, and that in our in our lifetime, that's that's not going to win an Oscar, I don't think. So, nineteen ninety eight, the year this came out, was the last year that uh, Gene uh, Gene Siskel did a best of list because he died uh, like a month later. Look up what his number one movie of nineteen ninety eight was. Gene Siskel. It's gonna blow your mind. You said for ninety nine, uh, ninety eight, right? Yeah, he died in ninety nine. So, was it junket whore? What? Oh, 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 Jesus, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Say it, Babe Pig in the City. <laughs> yes, Babe Pig in the City was his last number one movie before he died. the The whole line is pretty fucking wild, if you ask me, because you have you have a few of the Oscar winners in there, but you also have ants. You have Simon Birch. <laughs> you have there's something about Mary. <laughs> he was not Damn. a well man. <laughs> no, it it doesn't seem so. He didn't have Dark City on there, did he? No. Cause uh Ebert did. Yeah, you mentioned. Yeah. But ants? Oh, what a weird list. <laughs> yeah, uh no thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can see something about Mary, like this was a time period when like the R-rated comedy didn't really exist. So Yeah, so it was it was a novel thing at that point. So yeah. Do you have anything you want to promote before we get into bagels? Or actually, you know what? Let's get into bagels first and then we'll get to brass tacks. Alright. So how many bagels do you give this? That's tough. I want to give it more than I should. Because I've seen this movie exactly once, and I think that this is a movie I probably need to see two or three times to really fairly judge. I'm going to give it 10. Okay. Uh, I want to give it 11, but I, I can't do that in good conscience right now. I'm giving it 12 because you're wrong. So. <laughs> oh, cool. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> That's what you get for sending me to Tunisia, you asshole. Uh, by the way, have you come back yet? <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's a uh, yeah, that's a deep it cut 12, for all the hell is a musical uh, because, listeners <laughs> you know Kiefer Sutherland gives a Richard Kind performance mm-hmm. imagine if they replaced Kiefer Sutherland with Richard Kind in this movie <laughs> that would be so good you I, can I, tone Larry, I, I know exactly how I like my onions cooked Larry <laughs> goodbye <laughs> him and his mentaculous um yeah, so I'm giving this 12. I, I love this movie so much. I've watched it more than most films. It's like up there with most viewed. Yeah, I might uh, I might go out and grab the Blu-ray of this because I, I definitely will watch it again. Yeah, it's such a good film. Um, so, yeah, what do you got to promote? Oh, just all the, uh, the, the shows that I'm on. Uh, Old Men Yell at Cloud, uh, Nickelbacken. And you can download those wherever uh, you download podcasts legally or illegally. Don't do that. That's against the law now. What, download podcasts illegally? Yeah. Yeah, it's illegal to download them illegally. (laughs) No, but there's like a a huge jail fund. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I mean, how do you even do that? I don't know. All right, well, someone out there, discover how to do it, then get arrested for it. <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> yes, write to us from prison. 
we'll send you a cake. We'll send you a cake with a file in it. <laughs> yeah, sticking with 1940s fashion. Um, so yeah, I have Hell is a Musical. Uh, if you haven't listened to the miniseries that Chris and I did, Where in the World is Stephen Quincy Urkel? Do that. Um, yeah, and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And yeah, so Chris, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks for making me watch this. Um, it's been a long time coming, and I'm glad I finally did. So uh, until next time, I'm Scott Curlin. Bye. Bye.